0: Source number one, where it says, Parashat Vayetzeh uh, Parashashir. Vayifka Bamakom Vayilanchom, Vayilanchom, excuse me, or Vayilanchom, Ki Bo Hashemesh Vayikach Meavne Hamakom Vayasa Merashota Vayishka Bamakom Now if you look, I don't know where we are. The first source number one, under the title. Yeah. yeah, you just flip around, flip around the paper, flip around the first paper. There we are. You see? There it is, where it says the title. Yes, so over Uh, here, we're going to break this (laughs) thing. So over here we're going to break down the first pasuk into four different pieces. If you notice, I wrote source one in the first four columns, because they're all talking about the first pasuk. The first Rashi comes along and says like this, this place, when it says B'makom, what's the B'makom, the place that he's talking about? Rashi says, very simple, this is actually HaRamariyah which was the place where the Temple Mount, this is the Temple Mount in Yerushalayim, where Avram had the Akedas Yitzhak and where um, King Shlomo would build the Beit HaMikdash. The Medrash Rabbah says something very interesting right under this, okay? He says, why do we call the place? Why is it HaMakom? In general, he's not talking about this puzzle. He's talking about in general, you learn that whenever it says in the Torah HaMakom and it's not a physical place, it's talking about God. It refers to God as the place. So the question is why? So comes along Rabbi Yossi ben Chalaftah and says, we don't know whether God is the place of his world or whether his world is his place. Okay, interesting way of phrasing it. And he answers, but when the verse in in, uh, the Sefer of Shemot says, behold, there is a place with me. It follows that God is the place of his world, but his world is not his place. What does that mean? Everything in this world is created by God, but not everywhere in the world is considered a holy place. So it's an interesting dichotomy, the way the world works, which means God created the whole world. So then you could say, oh, if I'm in a club, you know, in some wacky club in Thailand, God created it. You know, so uh, kumbaya, you know, let's party. Who said this not? uh, Hashem created it, so how could it be bad? Or you say, no, 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 not so fast. We say God created the whole world, but there's a place that's his place. Where we are right now, you're in a Beit Knesset, that's his place. When you come into a home of someone, a beautiful Jewish home, that's his place. Not everywhere in the world is his place. There's certain places which are holy, and certain places which are not holy. Okay. Source number one, next one. Rabbi Yeshua Ben Lady comments on this and says, The Patriarchs, the Avot instituted three daily prayers. The famous lesson that we have is right over here in this week's Parsha. Avraham brought the Shachrit, right? Avraham brought the morning prayers where we see Avraham got up early in the morning. That's how we know Avraham started Shachris. Then comes Yitzchak when it comes to Mincha, right? Because he was out in the field when, when Rivka came. So Yitzchak started Mincha, and Yaakov is the one who started Marev, Arvit. He encountered the place because the sun had set. That's from this verse over here. Next source, he slept over the night there because the sun had set. Hashem caused the sun to set prematurely, so that Yaakov should sleep over there. For God said, should this righteous man enter my home and depart without staying the night. So it's very interesting here. In, in, in continuation to what we said before, that there's certain parts of the world that are holy and certain parts that are not. When Yaakov came to this place, Hashem said, I want, on Har HaMariah, my temple mount, I want that this righteous man is going to spend the night here. So Hashem literally wound down the sun so that it would become dark sooner. And Yaakov would stay there instead of traveling further. and He would sleep on the temple mount. Very interesting. Also tells you a lesson that when it comes to righteous people, you jump at the opportunity to welcome them into your home, to host them, to do good things with them. Source number, okay, source number two, if you go back to the first page, a little complicated, we're continuing source number one, back to what seems like the first page. What you might have thought was the first page, that's what we're going back to. He says like this, and he laid down in that place. Here he laid down to sleep from the Medrash Rabbah. But during the 14 years of his seclusion in the Holy Land, when he was studying under the Shiva of, excuse me, when he was studying under the Shiva of Aver, he did not lie down for 14 years. Here he lay down to sleep, but during the entire 20 years he spent in Lavan's house in Haran, he never slept for 20 years. So that tells us, according to this medrash, that Yaakov, when he was learning in yeshiva, and he was doing a good thing, he did not sleep for one night the entire time. And when he was in a dangerous place, he did not sleep for one night the entire time. In between on this mountain, he slept for one night, that was his rest. Which is interesting because it's complete opposites. Why did he not sleep in yeshiva? It was because he was constantly doing good, he didn't want to waste any time. Why did he not sleep in Choron? Because he didn't want to fall into a trap at any moment. He was very, very aware and on high alert. Interesting. Okay. For this next source, I think there's a fantastic, fantastic explanation from Rabbi Lord Dr. Jonathan Sachs. And it's just, it's unbelievable. So I'm very happy we got to, this is really Gvaldik. It's very Gishmak. (laughs) He says like this, (laughs) V'yacholom v'hinei sulam mutzav arzah v'rosho magia sh'mayma v'hinei malacha elohim olim v'yordimbo. So in his dream, when he slept in that area, he saw a ladder was standing on the earth. The top of it was reaching to the heavens and the bottom was going to the earth. So what does the Zohar say? This is prayer. Very simple, what's the ladder is prayer. Comes along Rav Sachs and he says like this, did this vision exercise any influence on the structure of Jewish prayer? I want to suggest that it did. Its influence was profound. If we examine Jewish prayer carefully, We will see that its shape precisely matches the idea of a ladder on which angels ascend and descend. I'm going to say it outside instead of reading it inside, just because if you were reading it inside, you guys could do that yourself. Then there's no point in me being here. So I'll tell you like this with a ladder. If you notice in general, when it comes to tefillah, the structure of tefillah is very interesting. With tefillah, we go up, literally, if you would say like a ladder, like a roller coaster. If you notice when it starts off, Shachris, for example, you start off with de Dezimra. It's sort of like the build-up, right? If you start off earlier than that, you have bravos, carbonos, Pesuket de Zimra. You're like building up, 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 up. And then you come to Shema and the Amida. That's the time where it's like the climax. That's like you're holy, very intense. That's when usually in the shul, it's the quietest. And then after the Shmanesrei, you see a descent. Even just from the way people are talking and acting, you see the atmosphere sort of descends and it goes into, even Kriyasa Torah, it's more, you know, a little more warm, people are talking and it descends into the rest of Tefillah, okay? Now, if you notice, you have this in the Amidah itself. If you look in the Amida, you'll see the way that it's structured is that it goes like this. It starts off and the first three brachos are Shevach, are praising Hashem. The next level is Bakasha, where you're asking Hashem for things. And the third level is Hodaya where again, you're thanking or praising Hashem as you leave. So you see this up and down motion. Now it's very interesting because that literally is exactly what a ladder is meant to be. Now what's the key? What's the point then is the question. If you're going up in the beginning and then you have the climax in the middle and then you go down, what's the whole point of the tefillah? A lot of people say like, what's the point of me davening? I went in the same Shmo and I came out the same Shmo. What was the point? You had to remind me about God. The second davening ends, we all go off to whatever we're doing, disappears and vanishes in a second. So the question is, what is the point of this up and down? The idea is, is the same with the angels, is that you're going up, you're getting inspiration, and even if it feels like afterwards, okay, you'll go back to your regular self, it's not the case. You now you took for the rest of your day that boost. That's why chakras is the longest, because the chakras you need the longest amount of time to go through the whole day. It needs to give you a real jolt for your day. So that's the idea. We're going up, we're getting inspiration, and then we're going down. And what's interesting that I would add to this is that many people today actually have taken the custom to take some time before chakras, not just during chakras itself, even before you start to do some sort of meditation, maybe to learn something in the morning, even if it's a five minute podcast, 10 minute podcast. If you have some inspiration before you start, then it's a completely different tefillah. Then you could think and you're you could be present. It's not just where your mind, you're reading words, you're following dominion and your mind is wandering to all these different crazy places but it's actually a time that you could be present and it could be very, very inspiring for your day. So that's an idea over here we bring of the ladder of tefillah. Source, okay, it goes a little complicated over here, but we're on source number three, okay? Source number three afterwards, source number four by Tamil Khulin. Hine again over here we have a fantastically practical uh, pirush for today. V'hine Adonai Nitzav alav, ani Adonai Avraham velohei lecha, The land on which you lie, to you I will give it, and to your seed. So the question is over here, very simple, that the Gemara is coming to answer and Rashi brings the Gemara. What does it mean, the land on which you lie? He was laying on... How tall was Yaakov? Let's say 6 feet, 7 feet, if you want to be generous. Maybe he was super tall, whatever, 10 amos. But he was laying on a little piece of land. So what does it mean when you say the land on which you lie? comes along Rashi and the Gemara and says, Hashem rolled up the entire land of Eretz Yisrael and he put it under Yaakov to indicate to him that it would be very easily conquered by his descendants. Now what I find to be so fascinating, what I find to be so fascinating about that is that if you look at Israeli history, when, when I read this source myself, if you look at the history of modern Israel, Eretz strong right? I'm not talking about all the thousands of years before. Right now, today, if you look at the stories, how many times you will read accounts of things that have happened there to Saul, and I'm sure everybody here who's living here knows them just as well as I do, that there have been completely inexplainable. Occurrences that have happened to be able to get her into Sok. One example right away in the beginning the war of independence I've said this story before, but it's good enough to say it a second time When we were trying to take back Tzfat, right? What the British did is when they were leaving They gave all the strategically high battle points to the Arabs. I don't know why I don't know what their intentions were But that's what they did. They gave them to the Arabs So for the Jews to be able to get Svat, they had to go up a mountain to try to get the land back. And it took months. It was a brutal battle for a very long time. Sure enough, we get this piece of machinery called the Davidka. Now the Davidka turned out to be, the words that were written in the article, which I thought were fantastic, was surprisingly unuseful. It was a totally stupid weapon. It made a very loud noise. It did not aim well. It didn't shoot well. It was pretty much useless, except for one thing. It had a very large bark with no bite, but that was very effective because the Arabs heard a rumor that the Jews got a nuclear weapon. And even more than that, they heard a rumor that it rains after a nuclear attack. And there was something very strange that would happen. After the the Davidka would shoot, this war took place in the summer. After the Davidka would shoot, it would usually rain. Which if you've ever been to Tzfat in the summer, I was there actually for two full summers, it does not rain in Tzfat in the summer, period. It doesn't rain in general in Israel in the summer it would rain after the Davidka would shoot. So the Arabs were convinced that this was a nuclear weapon. They scattered and ran from Tzvat, and Israel, the Jewish people took Tzvat. That's the story of the War of Independence, 1949, okay? Then you have, just going through Israel's history, you have 1967, the Six-Day War. Obviously, miraculous, we don't have to get into that. That's, uh, you know, B'China's Da. 1973, the Yom Kippur War, okay? There's a famous story with David Yini, the commander, that they were going through a minefield, and when they're going through this minefield, all the soldiers get down on their stomachs. Because when you're going through a minefield, they're not going to, God forbid, anybody should ever experience. But in a person, in a situation of a minefield, anywhere you step could be the end of your life. So what do they do? They have to go down on their stomach and slowly feel with their baton to see where if there's a mine coming in front of them. And even that, they don't have such good chances. All of a sudden, they're on their stomachs. This is from the story from this Commander. They're on their stomachs, they're feeling with the baton. This huge gust of wind comes blows all the dust and sand out of the way and they're standing there and they see all the mines in front of them and they walk right through because the mines were uncovered by the wind. There's actually a crazy story, not from this Gaza war, that I heard from the previous Gaza war. Um, it's an unbelievable story. I actually wasn't planning on saying because when I heard it, it was one of those stories that I thought to myself like, that sounds nuts, but it went around now. So I guess it's a pratis. So I'm going to repeat it anyway because, you know, shkakha pratis. Apparently in the 2014 Gaza war, There was a battalion of soldiers that went into a house and they go into this house and you heard the story? They go into this house. This story I heard from Zechariah Wallerstein, okay? They go into this house and they come into the house and they see a man standing there with a white beard and he tells them, you have to leave the house immediately. So the soldiers are saying, we're told we're supposed to go in here. They see a man standing there and he's telling them you have to leave the house. Turns out, long story short, I don't remember the whole story because the second I heard that part of the story, I was like, this sounds, too crazy for me, I'm gonna say this and shoulder, that's it, you know, that I'm gonna be fired. It Just sounds too nuts, you know, I don't know what the soldiers, what was going on. This guy comes out, turns out, they saw a Malach, they go back into the house, there's nobody there, the guy vanished, poof. He told me I have to leave immediately, the house exploded. Okay, that's a story from 2014 Gaza war. Another story from the 2014 Gaza war with no Malach, just uh, commander Ofer Winter of the Givati brigade, is that they had an attack that was planned to be pre-dawn. They were supposed to go into Israel, they timed it specifically so that it's dark, they'll have the cover of darkness and go in. Sure enough, they had a delay because of the weather, and they couldn't go in. So what happened is they said, we're still going to do the attack, but they don't have the cover of darkness, which was obviously made the attack that much more dangerous. This commander is not a, whatever you want to call it, dati guy. He said, we go and we start going into Gaza, we start approaching, He said, literally, as our unit comes to the point that we're meant to attack, a huge fog comes down and blocks everything. A huge, he said, literally, the way he described it, he said, I saw the clouds of glory. He said, I saw the clouds that protected the Jewish people of the desert. This whole cloud came down. The attack was a massive success. They went right through the cloud. It was perfect. Capish? So I think this verse that it says in this week's Parsha, right now is a time that we're having a war in Gaza. I think every single week, we found in the weekly Torah portion, a clear lesson and a message for right now what's going on. And right over here it says that Yaakov went to sleep on the land, Hashem folded the entire Eretz Yisrael under him to tell him this land is yours and any time you will conquer it, you will have my blessing. You will have my gift that you will have a clear and easy path. The question is if we always make the right decisions with those miracles, but there's no question that the miracles are there every single time. Source number four. It says Yaakov got up in the morning And he took the stone that he had put under his head Now the question is He took of the stones, multiple stones This is the famous, I don't know if you're a kid in, in preschool or kindergarten This was the play that they would do for this scene All the stones wanted to be under his head so what happened? They all wanted to be able to have the schus to be under Yaakov Vino's head. They squished together and formed together into one big happy family stone so they could all be the merit to be under his head together. Cute, cute little piece. Next source he says over here, Monuments are built of stone. For a more monumental monument, one takes bigger and more substantial stones. The question is, what is the oil for? Okay, this is actually a Dvar Torah little piece from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So the question is, over here we know in general, when you see in the Torah, there's always stones. Why did he bring shemen, oil, that's usually used for anointing a king or something like that? He says, in order for the monument to be a house of Hashem, then you need oil. Why? Because oil is extracted from the olive oil only when it is trodden upon and crushed. That's how they make oil, you have to squeeze the olive. Oil thus represents a person's self-abnegation and submission to God. Oil is the idea of squeezing and then oil comes out. Therefore, to walk away from Aver's house, to walk away from 14 years of being schlepped into Torah and yeshiva and everything, and then all of a sudden to be thrown into Haran, which is completely the other side of the planet, complete darkness and klippah, in order to be able to achieve that complete transformation, we're jumping over here, also a little complicated, the back of page seven. He said over there, that requires a great deal of oil. One who has only totally abnegated his own will to that of God is capable of such self-sacrifice, okay? So over here he speaks about a very interesting idea, that in general, he actually said this in a famous mind the Lubavitcher Rebbe said that he noticed that the Hasidim, and I think you noticed this today, it's a very interesting idea. He said he noticed that the Hasidim that went through white Russia, and they went through persecution of being Jewish, when they were in Russia, they would give up everything to be Jewish to be able to send their kids to school, they would do it under the threat of death, literally. They would keep Shabbos under the threat of death. They would do anything. But then the Rebbe said, all of a sudden when they came to America, where everything was free and everything was good and everything was easy, all of a sudden, then their Yiddishkeit, their Judaism started to wane. And it's very interesting, because he said, I noticed this phenomenon that when people are put under a situation where they're put into a pressure of uh, uh, oil, they're being crushed like an olive, that's when you see their strength come out. But when a person is given complete freedom, then you don't see it as much. And I think today you see in Eretz Yisrael the same thing. Before this whole thing happened with Hamas, Yamash, Yamam, there was, you know, uh, it wasn't so clear if everyone was so religious, so into God and everything, right? There was a little, we felt we were indestructible. We said the gates that protects us from Gaza is impenetrable. We're totally safe. All of a sudden Hamas comes in all of a sudden Israel is thrown into a war in a very scary situation, everybody's davening, everybody's tefillah, everyone wants tefillin, everybody wants tzitzes, it's the biggest thing. Still now, there's still a shortage, people are still tying tzitzis. I know all over the world people are still tying tzitzis because everybody wants a pair of tzitzis. Why does that happen? It's when we're put into a situation where our backs are against the wall, then all of a sudden we start davening. So the key is, is not to have to have our back against the wall is even in a situation where we're prospering and we're doing well is at that time to be realizing and be grateful to Hashem not when we're forced to be that way, okay? Very interesting point over here. I also want to tell you a story I forgot to say which is a fantastic story on this part of Tefillah I forgot to say before but I don't want to forget it because it's pretty, pretty juicy. Again, also in the 2014 war in Gaza there was a woman whose name was Betsy. Betsy and her husband's name was Simon from Beverly Hills, California. They came to Herzliya and they were dining in a restaurant called Meat and Wine Co. I don't know if you've been to the restaurant before, Meat and Wine Co. So they were seated downstairs by a table and they had a waiter. Then the wife says, "Betty says, I don't want to sit downstairs, I want to sit upstairs. I've never been to the restaurant, but apparently there's a nice upstairs with a view or whatever. So she said, I want to be upstairs. So they get sent to a different table with a different waiter. They sit down at this table and the waiter comes over and he starts telling them, here's the specials, the fish, you know, he starts kibitzing a little bit, how you doing? And they're smiling, have a good time. And he says, by the way, if you guys need anything, my name is Barak. So right away Betsy gets all excited and he walks away and she tells her husband, you have to ask him what his mother's name is. And the husband's like, you know, okay, whatever. His wife wants to sit upstairs, she'll sit upstairs. She wants to know what the waiter's wife, uh, mother's name is. We'll ask the waiter's mother's name. She asks him and he says, my mother's name is Orna. She cannot believe it. She had on her fridge, Apparently there's a thing I think today as well that you call the hotline and if you want to pray for the soldiers They give you a name of a soldier to pray for. So the soldier that she got to pray for For months and months throughout the whole war. His name was Barak Ben Orna So she asks him were you a soldier in this past war in Gaza? And he says yes, I was and sure enough she realizes that she was praying for months for this guy Barak Ben Orna and he when, he, when they realized this whole situation that happened, he decided from then on, which he had not done until then, from then on, he was going to put on tefillin because he saw a moment where Hashem gave him a little tap on the shoulder, like someone is watching over you or someone taking care of you. So today, 2023, sadly, we're still in a war with Gaza, but all these little stories of people praying for the soldiers and you do challah for the soldiers and all these things, they really have a real impact. And over here in Beverly Hills, she actually, was thinking to herself a few weeks before, because she still had the name on her fridge for months, that it would be nice if I would know if he was alive. Now I've been praying for this guy, who knows, maybe he died, maybe maybe something happened to him, and I don't even know. It would be nice to know if he was alive. Sure enough, she sits down and meet in wine in and she meets Barak Orna. So just a nice little tidbit. Next source, number six. Okay, Lovon, when he heard that his family was coming, he ran out to meet him and he hugged him and he kissed him and he brought him into his house and he told Lovon all of these things. Lovon thought to himself, very simple, Medrash He said, if Eliezer was just a servant in Avram's household, there's no question if he brought all these rings and diamonds and all these big, juicy, rich things, Yaakov himself, could you imagine how much wealth he must be carrying on him? So Laman came out and he started to check, where's all the cash? Where's all the money? So he starts looking, he starts hugging him, he's thinking maybe it's in his pockets, maybe it's in his coat, he sees nothing there. And he starts kissing him, he's thinking maybe he has jewels or diamonds in his mouth, nothing there. And he's checking the whole time and he says to him, he says to him, what do you think that I came laden with wealth? I have come laden with nothing but words. So that's when he told on all these things. They started talking because first Lavan wanted to know how much cash do you have on you? And when he said he has nothing, he said, okay, fine, let's talk. He realized there was nothing to take. Rashi comes along and says something very interesting. And Lephaz, the son of Esav, was commanded by Esav to chase after Yaakov and kill him. Right? There's many different versions of this story. There's also a version mm-hmm. with an angel that he went to fight with the angel of Esav. Yeah. What? mentioned mentioned this. I mentioned this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. By the color, Yes that Aliphaz came to, to, to kill him. But Aliphaz didn't want to kill him. Because Aliphaz grew up next to Yitzchak. Aliphaz grew up with his Zaidi. Zaidi was a great guy. Maybe ASA was his dad, but his Zaidi was a great person. He didn't want to be like Asa. So he was very reluctant to kill him. So he said to Yaakov, what should I do about my father's command? So Yaakov said to him, take everything I have, and a pauper is like a dead person. So actually connects these two midrashim over here. Why did Yaakov show up with nothing? Not because he had nothing. He had a lot of wealth with him. But Eliphaz came to kill him. Yaakov didn't want Eliphaz to feel bad for not killing him. So Yaakov said, take everything I have. I'm poor. It's as if I am dead. Very intense saying over there. Okay. What? What? First from okay, the first customer. Since by it say Yako Bibersheba by Yelfavana, Bibersheva said Miyad Ba Alifaz Russia, Shu Ben Asa, Baitan Yakoblo, Cole Hello Rafisha Ama K. From Bibershe Bayel Sharmana, you have the whole story of this. Wow. Very interesting. That was juicy. Okay. Leia's eyes were weak. They were soft. Why were they soft? She heard that people were saying at the crossroads. People were uh, bickering. Or people were, the rumors were going around the neighborhood. Rebecca has two sons. Rivka has two sons, excuse me. This is from the Gemara Bav Basra, by the way. Rivka has two sons and Lavan has two daughters. So what's the famous thing that it says? The older is going to marry the older and the younger is going to marry the younger. So Leia would end up with Asaf. My bad, excuse me. Leah is going to marry the older because she's the older and Rivka the younger to marry Yaakov. The other way around. <coughs> so she asked the people, she said, okay, so if this is going to be my husband because she hears the rumor going around the Shuna, this is the neighbor, she said, this is going to be your husband. How does he act? So they told her, he's a wicked man. He's a highway robber. How does the younger man conduct himself? He's a wholesome man dwelling in tents in the Olim, in Yeshiva. And she wept until her eyelashes fell out. That's how much she was crying about marrying Esau. Source number eight. So, the famous story, he wakes up in the morning and he realizes it's Leah. What happened? The whole switcheroo. So, when Yaakov said to Rachel, famous, famous, from the Gemara and Rasha, Yaakov said to Rachel, will you marry me? She said to him, yes, but my father is very sharp. He's very trickery. Excuse me, he's a big trickster. You're not going to be able to hold up against him. You're going to be crushed by him easily. He's going to... You're a little guy from Yeshiva. My father's an experienced businessman. He's totally going to wipe the floor with you. So Yaakov said, I am equal to him in his trickery. Obviously, Rachel doesn't know the whole story where Yaakov got the blessings. Yaakov is an experienced trickster. He knows exactly how to do whatever he's got to do. So he asked Rachel. The, Rachel asked him, are the righteous able to do trickery? If you're a righteous man, how could you be a trickster? Yaakov said, yes. With the pure, be pure. And with the crooked, be crafty. So over here, the reason why I thought this is so interesting, this is a very famous story, this Rashi and this Gemara, right? Obviously we all know Yaakov did the lies and the, the cheat and the code, and he made sure that he would be able to marry Rachel. Everyone knows that. But what's interesting over here that he brings in this Rashi and this Gemara is that a lot of times people think to be righteous means to be somebody who everyone stomps all over and tramples on. And that's not what it means at all whatsoever. And actually a few of the greatest Rashi shivas and Rabbanim that I know are men with very strong personalities, right? It doesn't mean to be righteous that you have to smile at everybody and only say yes. Not at all. It means you have to be strong in who you are. You have to be strong in your morals. It's easy to be smiley and say yes to everything. It's hard to be strong to do what is the right thing. So what Yaakov said to her is no. He said, when it comes to righteous people and people that tell the truth, he said 100%. But if I'm dealing with a man who's going to trick me and who's going to mess with me, then you'll see what I'm capable of. Then you'll see that I could be very strong. All that night, Leah was impersonating Rachel, which is interesting over here. I did not bring this pirush, and I forgot what the source is, if you could remind me. But there's a source which says that Rachel was actually under the bed on their first night together. Because in order to make sure that Leah would not feel, would not be the whole ruse, wouldn't be, what? Yeah. In order to make sure the whole ruse wouldn't fall apart, it'd have to be Rachel's voice, it had to be everything. So Rachel was actually there throughout the entire time, which only makes it that much crazier how righteous she was. It's not like she gave the codes and she left. She actually experience being fully involved in a scenario where it was, her, it was her love of her life and she was giving her way to her sister so that her sister wouldn't be embarrassed. It's really a crazy story when you think about it. When Yaakov got up in the morning and he saw that it was Leah, he said to her, daughter of the deceiver, you're the daughter of the liar. Why have you deceived me? She said to him, and you, did you not deceive your father when he asked you, are you my son Esau? She said, you lied to your father, I lied to you. That's the way the world works. <laughs> what? How did you know? That's a good question. How did you know? I have to say, Jeff, Jeff was telling me about this idea of, if you look a lot of this week's Parsha, in general, there's a lot of Ruach HaKodesh. A lot of people are like, you know, seeing things, and, and when, ya- when Yaakov hugs Binyamin, he sees the base of Amigdash, a lot of Ruach HaKodesh going on. So we can't ask questions. We just have to assume there's some miracles going on. Who knows? <laughs> Source number nine. Milei Sheva... Right? So he says, fill for me this week of seven days, and then you're going to work for me another seven years, and it's going to be all good. Over here we have from the Avot de Rabinaton, the source for Sheva Brachot. This is the source in this week's parsha, in this Pasuk, where we have the idea of the Sheva Brachot, is from this idea. Where Lavan says to him, spend seven days with her, and then you will work for me another seven years. That's the source for Sheva Brachot. That's why we do it till today. Because of those seven days that Yaakov was with Leah. Source number ten. Now, if you look in the verse, it's very interesting. It says that he went to Rachel and he loved Rachel. And it's like we already knew that. Of course, he loved Rachel. Rachel was the love of his life. Why does he have to tell me he loved Rachel this time? What do you mean he was filled with love all of a sudden? The Kedushah Salevi comes along and says the Hebrew word Vayehav Gam et Rachel Mileah, also translates as that he loved Rachel more from Leah, which means when he saw how righteous she was, what she did, that her sister should not be embarrassed and her sister should not end up marrying Asa. that she literally gave away the codes. She was under the bed deceiving him just so that her sister should be okay. He said, wow. He said, this is really a special woman. This is really something. And therefore he loved her even more because of everything she did from that time. Source number 10, he served him another seven years, continuing the the Pasuk before. Yaakov served Lavan as faithfully in the second seven years as he did in the first, even though he had been tricked into them by Lavan's deception. Which tells you something, again, continue what we said before, is that when it comes to being strong as a righteous person, you have to be strong. But that doesn't mean that you become a liar. Your word is still your word. So Yaakov, when he had to go up against Lavan, he was very strong. But when he said he's gonna work another seven years, he worked the same strength seven years as he did the first seven. He didn't be any more, less than he was before. Listen to how beautiful this uh, explanation is. Leah said, this time my husband will be joined, Who will be a lover to me, he's gonna be joined to me, because I have born him three sons. Why does it matter three sons? What's the difference between three and two? I think I'm about to find out, God willing, sometime in the future. He said, a woman has one child. No, 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 it's not, uh, no, there's no, no exciting news. Just one day, <laughs> no exciting news. One day in the future, God willing. Hashem. A woman has one child and he, she carries it in her arm. When she has two children, both her arms are full. But when her third child is born, her husband has no choice but to help her and thus, Leah like said, now I'm going to be able to have my husband. He's going to be stuck to me because now I have the two children. And he has to have the one. Now, what's very interesting about this is if i have literally just spoke to someone today who has three kids and this is not the case today. The way that it works today is not that the woman has the kid in one hand and she has another kid in the second hand and then the third kid, the husband. Yeah. No, no, not in that. The way it works today is the woman has one kid. Even the first kid, the husband is helping out 30 to 40% of the time, you know? Then by the second kid, it's one and one. It's not her taking both. And then by the third kid, they're totally, that's it. Forget about it, they're doomed. It's total disaster. <laughs> I literally just spoke to someone, he told me, once the third kid comes, he said, you think two kids, you're like, wow, you know, actually, this is very nice. People make it seem like kids are so hard. you are like, two kids, this is easy. This is fantastic, they're so cute, they're babies. He said, the third kid comes, he said, wow. He said, now you have to reevaluate everything. Now you have to. It's an old joke, you have one child get you get to play man. To man. And time you third, you to learn how to play a song. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Well said. So, the third, from what I heard from people, the third brings a whole new dynamic. And it's interesting that it says it right here in the Torah. The third brings a whole new dynamic that you do not have with the first two and really brings it to a whole nother level. Last source, source number 12. The Acher Yalda Bat Batikra at Shimad Dina. And then she had a daughter and her daughter's name was Dina. Now there's a lot of explanations, by the way, on the Torah that will tell you that every Shevet that was born had a pair, had another girl, right? So the fact over here, it says a girl, probably, if you add to the explanation that we actually mentioned earlier today, means that maybe she had twin daughters, according to that explanation. And it was meant to be a boy and a girl like all the other ones, but Leah didn't want that she would have more boys than her sister Ruffle. So she prayed and it turned into a girl. So when it says over here, she had a girl, according to that explanation, that would seem to say would be twin girls, not just one girl. So what does it mean when it says afterwards? After what? What is it talking about? After what did she have a daughter? So Rav said, after Leah had passed judgment on herself, saying that 12 tribes are destined to issue from Yaakov, six have come from me, four from the maids, making 10. If this child is gonna be a male, then Rachel will not be equal even to one of the handmaids. So she in to make sure that her son turned into a girl, which like we mentioned today, we'll say it again, because I think it's worth saying again is that even though they had between them, you could see from this whole story that we said today, between Rachel and Leah, they had a fascinating relationship because first Rachel gives everything to Leia, right? She sacrifices her, the love of her life. She literally gives her the code. She goes under the bed. You would think, wow, Rachel must be, Leah's the greatest. But then once they're married, all of a sudden you see this competition happens. Leia has more kids, Rachel's not having kids, Rachel is barren. We know for a woman to be barren is very difficult by itself, but to have her sister who she gave her husband to first to have kids, can't even imagine. So they have this whole jealousy battle going on. They do compete with each other. Leia has more kids, Rachel has two kids, but Rachel's kids are the favorites. But still under the entire process, there's love. And that's the key, just to end off with that for tonight is that in order to achieve unity, when we're talking about unity, 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 and love and the Jewish people and everything, there needs to be an underpinning of love. It doesn't mean we always need to love each other openly every second of the day, hugging each other and dancing. It means we could still be normal. We could still argue and debate. But with an underpinning of love, that's the key. That's the secret sauce. That's what we have to remember. Okay?